If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, Choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From the turkey trot to the scandalous moves of the Parisian tango, the 20th century saw dance craze after dance craze grip Britain. Performed in public dance halls up and down the country, Ballroom took the nation by storm as people from all walks of life took to the dance floor with their partners. Ahead of this weekend's Strictly Come Dancing final, Hilary French tells Emily Briffitt about Ballroom's dramatic surge in popularity, its decline in the 1960s and its recent Strictly resurgence. Hi Hilary, it's really lovely to be talking to you today. Hi Emily. So today we are going to be talking all about ballroom dancing. And so firstly, I kind of just wanted to ask you, when did ballroom dancing come about? Well, it started really at the end of the 19th century, uh, beginning of the 20th century, when it moved from being something that was done mainly by the leisured wealthy classes in their private ballrooms in their country estates or in their London houses and started to become very popular with the working classes. 
I think for, for the wealthier classes, holding balls had been an important part of social life. It was an opportunity for families to meet up, particularly younger generations, to meet prospective marriage partners. And everybody had to know certain kinds of dances. Knowing the script for the square dances and round dances, things like minuets and quadrilles, how to behave and how to dress was a kind of important indicator of social standing. I think at that time, working people had engaged in similar, simpler jigs and polkas or country dances that similarly required knowledge of a set of figures that could be repeated. But towards the end of the 19th century, there was this surge in interest in dancing, which seemed to be fueled mostly by new kinds of music that were coming mainly from America. Um, at this time as well, the working class, it, it's hard to know exactly what the, what the reasons are for why it happened, but increased leisure time was one very important aspect. There was a move towards a five-day working week, which had started with giving workers a half day off on Saturdays. And they did things like play football matches on Saturday afternoons then. And it was also hoped that that would um, improve church attendance on Sundays. And this increased leisure time meant, obviously, people were looking for exciting things to do. And it was also um, promoted business opportunities. And we see expansion in railways and offering cheap excursion tickets to get out of town to the countryside or the coast. And we see a, a huge entertainment industry boom. And I think from there, the seaside had started to be a place to visit. And in the south of England, particularly, there'd been growth at seaside resorts like Brighton and Margate, which was mainly, again, the leisured classes, the wealthier classes going to the seaside. But we then see, with the increased leisure time for workers, the north of England, the seaside very quickly became a favoured destination. And that's particularly Blackpool and some of the surrounding towns there. So for young people, there was suddenly this escape from their, what we can only assume a kind of rather drab, working life in the Lancashire mills to go to the seaside, to have a day by the sea for fun, drinking, bathing without machines and dancing, of course. They were looking for excitement and entertainment and we then start to see a whole bunch of new dances being invented. Was early ballroom to what we might expect today? In lots of ways, it's very similar. I mean, the, it, it hasn't changed very much. I mean, the, there were a lot of different what were called modern dances at the time to distinguish them from the old ones they were modern dances and the big difference between the old-fashioned scripted dances was that people danced in couples they danced toe-to-toe -to -toe rather than side by side and that hasn't really changed there were developments and codification that took place during the 1920s but since those dances were set down and written down in 1929, they've pretty much remained the same. Obviously, it's, when we're talking about ballroom, we're often talking about ballroom and Latin dancing. And Latin dancing took a bit longer to codify, not till the mid-50s, and then a couple were added after that. So you said that the more steps came in in sort of the 1920s, particularly for ballroom. Why did this come in? 
Mostly, I think, change in music, ragtime music, honky-tonk pianos, jazz music. And I think around the same time as well, during about 1910, you get the invention of gramophones. So people can circulate music much more. So as soon as there's a, there, were, there were new sounds, so people were inventing new dancers. And because of the popularity, there's the teachers and the um, people, the promoters running dances were struggling to keep the crowds under control. So they actually had plans to invent new dances because they thought if we can teach everybody some proper dancing skills and keep them moving around the floor, it'll cause less of a problem. So, yeah, if I go back to say the, the modern dances, which meant dancing in what we now called close hold, toe-to-toe rather than side-by-side. And this is usually with a man leading, going forwards, and the woman following, moving backwards. And there were some problems with it because people thought dancing in such close proximity was not really acceptable for moral reasons, but it did become the norm quite quickly. And and when the, the first dance crazies, as we refer to them now, arrived from America. They came with ragtime music. They're now called animal dances because they had lots of animalistic movements and rather outlandish names. Things like the turkey trot or the grizzly bear, which actually involve mimicking a bear with your hands in kind of claw-like position. And the bunny hug are all curiosities now. But at the time, I think they represented a kind of liberation from the constraints of classical dance and the re- repetitive and sedate square dances. And each of these crazes lasted a relatively short time before another one came along to replace it. Um, there are two dancers who are a couple who are credited with making this new form of partner dancing acceptable. Uh, Vernon and Irene Castle whose dancing career started in Paris when they performed a version of The Grizzly Bear, which they'd learnt from newspaper clippings sent from America. And they were dancing to Irving Berlin's Alexander's Ragtime Band, which was the new tune that year. And they went on to have a successful career. Everyone was so excited by this new kind of dancing. that They were at the Café de Paris for a while and then went back to New York to the Café de l'Opéra in 1912. And from there, they just got bigger and bigger, opening a series of their own dancing clubs and became a kind of established celebrity couple. They had very avant-garde style and society connections. They both had big influence on fashion, not just dancing. Vernon started wearing short evening jackets instead of tailcoats because when he was flying around at crowded parties, they would cause problems. And Irene was... um, well known for making alterations to her skirts particularly to put slits in them or pleats so that she could dance more easily. And she's also credited with being one of the first to cut her hair short and wearing what she called a castle band to keep it in place, which became very popular in the 1920s. Um, Around the same time as well, 1912, they say, the tango had arrived in London from Paris. And again, I mean, rather than being just a passing craze, the tango was adopted as more than just the dance. It embraced fashion and music. There were tango teas, tango dinners, tango balls everywhere. 
And there's a fantastic book called um, The Tango and How to Dance It, published in 1913 by a socialite called Gladys Crozier, which included all sorts of things, extensive advice on what you were supposed to wear, how to host a tango party, as well as lots of details and pictures of how to dance the different figures. The tango as well in in this time where people are getting used to the idea of dancing toe-to-toe or face-to-face was criticised for being overly sexualised, crude or simply not wholesome enough. And I think at this this time it had already been watered down to an extent when it came from Paris rather than the original Argentine version. What troubled people was that as well as the too much body contact, it was also too static. And if you weren't actually moving round the room, that would encourage people to make too many body movements, which were still considered unacceptable at this time. They did, there was a revised version eventually in the mid-1920s with fewer figures and more actual steps and progression around the room. And that's the one we see today. There is a big difference between Argentine tango and ballroom tango. Um, I think at that time as well, sort of 1910, 1920, the foxtrot which is a relatively simple 4-4 time walking dance, became the most common dance both in England and America, which, according to the the historians, it frustrated teachers because they wanted to find new dances. It wasn't very satisfying for them if, if everybody was just doing very simple walking dances. But just when they thought they were getting a grip on new dances early 1920s the Charleston arrived from America which was another was really another another craze it didn't last very long but it seemed to have had it's had quite a big impact on other dances it was included in the first um, Imperial Society of Teachers of Dancing conference in 1925 but they had considerable doubt that it would be taken up by the dancing public and it but it did become very popular at new, smaller supper clubs. And according to Victor Sylvester in his autobiography, he said people were practising it everywhere. You'd see, you know, he talks about policemen doing it while they're out on duty and people doing it on railway stations to practise. Whether we believe that or not, I'm not sure. Um, it It was extremely popular, but only for a very short time. It was clearly fun. Um, but for many, it was too energetic and the kicking in all directions made it hazardous, especially on the crowded floors. And it was banned in lots of places. Um, curiously, though, for the, for the puritanical who'd been concerned at the close proximity required for modern dances, the Charleston was less problematic because people decided it was best suited for solo dancing. And even with even if you had a partner, it was necessary to keep your distance so you didn't kick them. There's a book published in 1926 called How to Charleston Correctly, which makes claims for its physical and moral benefits, saying um, morally this dance should be considered more favourably than many of the modern dances, which allow the dancing couples to remain in close bodily contact during the dance. The Charleston demands that couples shall not have bodily contact in executing the dance. There was a modified version called the Flat Charleston or the Silent 
silent or whisper in Charleston because it um, made a kind of noise of sweeping feet across the floor. So it, it limited movement to the swivel rather than the kicking. Um, as I say, it didn't last in the ballroom. It was just too energetic, too complex. But some of the figures were incorporated into the quick step, which was coming then. I just wanted to pick you up on something you were talking about there. Could you tell us more about the codification of dancing styles? Coming up to 1920, the popular dances then included a variety of more traditional round dances, square dances, versions of the waltz, the two-step, all the various animal dances. There were lots and lots of things going on. And the huge numbers of people involved caused overcrowding and ongoing chaos in the ballrooms. And for the dancing teachers, they were keen to instil some kind of control, as were the promoters. Um, The dancing teachers had already begun to form trade organisations towards the end of the 19th century, just like other workers did. And together they were struggling to create this sense of order. Uh, The most influential organisation which is still in existence today is the Imperial Society of Teachers of Dancing, which was formed in 1904. So their plan to make sure that the public knew sufficient steps to a set number of dances was so that they could more easily be able to dance with each other. And also this would avoid what they referred to as freak steps, ostentatious behaviour, slovenly manners and rowdiness. It took a while to decide the way forward. The more conservative members of the, of the associations thought that they ought to go back to the origins and roots of dances that they knew but others thought that those were primitive and with no classical or academic credentials should remain in the past. They wanted to create a new orthodoxy for modern dancing appropriate for the modern age. So, of course, to be able to teach the many keen dancers all over the country, they set out to teach the teachers first and decided eventually that they should start from a clean slate and devise new dances. They were to do this through annual competitions. The winning dance would be taught in all the schools. Um, So this process of codification started in 1920 with a series of what were called the informal conferences, which brought together some of the leading dancers and was led by the then editor of the Dancing Times, PJ Richardson, um, who organised committees to set out the series of rules for the most common dances. It took them the best part of 10 years to agree on the dances, the figures and other matters. And in 1929, the committee members set up what was called the Official Board of Ballroom Dancing, which is now the British Dance Council. Importantly, they set out agreed figures for five dances, the waltz, foxtrot, quickstep, tango and Yale blues. The Yale Blues is now replaced or was replaced quite quickly by the Viennese Waltz, but the others are still current and have changed very little since. The newest of the dances, um, known initially as the Quick Time Foxtrot, when bands played music too quickly, was to be promoted with its new name, the Quick Step, and as they were still concerned that the dancing public were looking for novelty, agreed that they would invent one new dance each year. The process to codify the Latin dances also took much more than a decade, a long time. 
a project that wasn't finally completed until, well, it was completed in 1955. And then later the cha-cha-cha was added and then the final one in 1968, the jive. Yet similarly, a committee was set up, this time led by Pierre. The members were uh, Dimitri Petridis and uh, Cassani, Gwyneth Walsh, George Fontana and Doris Lavelle. It's important to note probably that almost all the dances, ballroom and Latin, originated elsewhere. The British dancers took the basic vernacular forms, analysed them and redesigned them or remodelled them to conform to what they considered English taste, to make them suitable for English ballrooms. And in fact, in the early days, the modern dances, as they were called originally, were referred to as the English style before being renamed as standard much later and now international style. So the current international style, which is still used in all competitions, is still the 10 dances in general as codified in Britain in the mid-20th century between 1929 and 68. It is a particularly British affair. As inventors or originators of modern dancing, the first generations of ballroom dancers went on to win all the early competitions. They held annual congresses held by the professional associations, attracted visitors from all around the world. And then as they retired from competition, started teaching abroad in other countries. In fact, Victor Sylvester pointed out in the early 1950s that ballroom had become one of our most important exports and has been assiduously copied on the continent in Japan and India, as well as in most of the Commonwealth countries. And also there was a lengthy article in the Times in 1956 that claimed Britain, in fact, is preeminent in ballroom dancing. No other nation has such style, so many entrants for the annual ballroom events or such support from its public. The ballrooms and the Palais de Danse have become an important social influence, an influence, moreover, entirely for good. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I walked down a flight of stairs, straight into the continent. This might have been Paris or Berlin, this large octagonal room, with balconies lined with a row of red electric lamps, great Chinese lanterns hanging from the arched roof, the orchestra seated before a backcloth of gold and grey. There was a continental touch about the assorted costumes too. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. I'd like to return, before we spoke about the codification of dancing, we left off on the Charleston, but I'd like to ask you what became popular after the Charleston for the rest of the 20th century? So... Starting from codification, I think the next big influence on dancing in Britain, and this is very much a British history we're talking about. In the 1930s, the most popular leisure activities were going dancing, going to the cinema. Both were activities linked to courtship. It's dance halls and cinemas where plenty of other people were considered safe places for this now established generation of unchaperoned young women. And by this time, the American cinema industry was booming. And within a very short time after the first, the first talking picture in 1927, a new genre of film musicals f- seemed to fuel the popularity of dancing. And the most important of these is the series um, starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, w- which were all made in the 1930s by RKO. I think for for everybody, if you know nothing of ballroom dancing, you know about Astaire and Rogers. There's never really been a couple before or after who've who've achieved the same kind of fame. Here was a couple who danced in close hold together and the choruses were made up of couples dancing together as well. And I think it's this, probably the, the image that was created by Hollywood is the one that has remained as the enduring image of ballroom dancing today. I think going on from from there and starting in the 1930s, we already start to see um, Latin rhythms coming in gradually. And the first instruction books were written in the late 1940s. The next wave, again, is something that I think people are very familiar with, again from America, was jitterbug and then rock and roll. Again, it was a form of dancing which was eventually added to the set of international Latin dances as the jive, quite different from the original jitterbug, but based on it. And again, we see this wave of American music coming in, inspiring a rock and roll dancing craze, very much like that inspired by the the ragtime music in 1910 or the Charleston in 1920s. I think after that, by the 1960s, we start to see some waning of interest in ballroom dancing. Lots of different factors. The 1960s is is generally considered a period of quite big social change. Television was becoming commonplace 
and people were going out much less. And those two really popular activities of going out dancing or going to the cinema both changed enormously. It also started to be, I think, a time where we start to see much more uh, differentiation between the generations. Things like, I mean, very uh, almost parochial things like the invention of Radio One, which put, you know, pop music or music aimed at much younger people on a separate radio programme. And we see ballroom dancing starting to be um, identified only with an older generation. And then, of course, the next American import, the twist, arrived in the 1960s. And this is, this is when we start to see the end of any kind of physical contact when dancing, from the kind of scandalous days of people wanting to dance close to each other. By the time disco music arrived in the 1970s, People are dancing completely on their own um, and perhaps spurred on by another film by Saturday Night Fever, which is credited with bringing a lot of people back to dancing schools, wanting to dance like John Travolta. But dancing solo became the norm and the idea of control in dancing has disappeared completely. Dancing could be exuberant and flamboyant again and anything goes. So it's almost a kind of full circle from the early days. I think many people, certainly in the UK, will be really familiar with Strictly Come Dancing. But of course, as we've said, it's got longer roots in the media than that, from the emergence of television to Hollywood films. When did ballroom first arrive on the media scene? Well, in the, in the very early days, all the new dances that we were arriving frequently from America and other places were regularly described in newspapers. And quite a few of the professional dancers collaborated with papers to deliver instruction sessions. And then when gramophone companies started and started um, producing records, we see instruction leaflets with them coming out. And then probably the best-known American professional in the early days was Arthur Murray, and he experimented with a letter service initially and an early version of videos for instruction. Before developing a successful chain of schools, um, by 1946 he had 72 franchise studios, and his advertising was targeted at social aspects of dancing that would help the less confident make friends and meet new people. Um, and he also had a TV programme which ran from 1950 to 1962. And interestingly, he already saw the advantage of including a celebrity element in his show. It was called the Arthur Murray Dance Party and it broadcast on all the major US networks. For the audience, he thought the attraction of watching stars attempting to learn new skills and waiting for them to humiliate themselves was perhaps as strong as voting for their favourites. And maybe too, it's important to mention in, in the context of Strictly today that the celebrity element is clearly of key importance. Uh, the BBC launched a programme without stars called Strictly Dance Fever, hosted by Graham Norton, with a very similar format to Strictly Come Dancing, but dedicated to alternative rhythms. And it only ran for two seasons, 2005 and six, because with no celebrity elements, the viewers weren't interested to watch real world 
amateur couples compete. But successful TV programmes in Britain, there are two that uh, predate Strictly, the TV Dancing Club and Come Dancing. TV Dancing Club um, was based on Victor Sylvester's original radio programme that started in 1937 and was launched on TV in 1948, and it ran until 1964. And similar to his radio show, it included instruction, there were competitions judged by popular vote, expert demonstrations. And as the intro says, with Victor Sylvester dressed in his um, black tie, to bring the glamour and elegance of good ballroom dancing into your homes. And the most important programme, Come Dancing, eventually had a audience figures of 10 million, which was huge for the time. And Sylvester's programme was more traditional, aimed at probably an older audience. Come Dancing was more in tune with the younger audience who were more interested in the Latin rhythms and the jive. And it became yet more popular after the introduction of formation teams and regional competitions. Come Dancing also introduced the grand dam of ballroom dancing, Peggy Spencer, who was a major influence on the ballroom world through her work as a teacher, adjudicator, choreographer, and she, she had a wide range of related work in TV and radio. By the 1960s, the press had lost interest in dancing and it was rare to find any mention of anything related to dancing, even ongoing British success in competition. In fact, Peggy Spencer was very angry about this. She, she was somebody who campaigned tirelessly to get ballroom dancing into the Olympics and to get better coverage. And um, quoting from her book, Come Dancing, published in 1968, she says, it's difficult to understand the attitude of the British press. Similar successes for British skaters, swimmers or tennis players would be front page news with interviews and photos. Our dancing champions should be household names. They bring us great prestige abroad. After all, we have more competitive dancers than competitive skaters or swimmers or tournament tennis players. Um, coming back to Strictly Come Dancing, it's been on the screen now for almost 20 years and has gradually become more popular during that time. Sometimes it's dismissed only as a reality show, but I think it has a difference to other reality shows in the sense that you learn something, perhaps, but also it's, it's about this idea of luxury, which I think goes through the whole idea of ballroom dancing. If you're a celebrity on Strictly Come Dancing, you effectively have your own personal trainer every day for weeks on end. You have bespoke costumes made for you. You have professional hair and makeup artists to take care of you. I can't think of anything else that comes close to that in TV or real life. Speaking about luxury, I think when people think of Strictly, they think of the Tower But whereabouts did people actually dance historically? Well, I think in ballroom dancing on a large scale did begin in seaside resorts rather than in London or other towns and cities. Um, the wealthier classes had been indulging in sea bathing for some time, but Blackpool is considered to be the world's first working class seaside resort, has to be at the beginning of any history of ballroom dancing. Seaside architecture, as we now refer to these entertainment buildings that were developed generally in the period 
1870 to 1914, had a style of its own. Very exuberant and flamboyant, <clears throat> the architects and designers could experiment with new kinds of buildings to house new kinds of activities. And they chose styles that represented the idea of escapism, the pleasure and luxury, whether you know exotic influences were chosen. They had Moorish decorations, Indian motifs, all kinds of chinoiserie, anything that evoked an idea of fantasy, an idea of an other place. Blackpool was one of the first to see the potential in attracting tourism. The Blackpool Corporation was quick to exploit the increased numbers of visitors of every kind, introducing a form of zoning to accommodate those with less money to spend. And by that drew many different kinds of entertainment companies eager to develop new, new buildings. The most successful is the Blackpool Tower Company, whose first project was to pretty much simply copy the recently opened Eiffel Tower in Paris, which had been put up for the Universal Exhibition of 1889. Unlike the Eiffel Tower, though, Blackpool's tower was to have an entirely new kind of building at the base to house a series of visitor attractions and entertainment spaces, including on one side of the first floor, the Tower Ballroom, which when it opened in 1894, it was the first ballroom in England built specifically as an amenity for the general public to dance. Seeing the popularity of the Tower Ballroom, the Blackpool Winter Gardens, until then the best known for more upmarket concerts and promenading spaces, they carried out major renovations, which included replacing indoor and outdoor skating rinks, which had been one of the last crazes that um, people had been involved with. And they kept the... They kept the wide ambulatory with the glazed roof that had encircled the original central concert hall, which provides the all-important promenading space, and added the huge new Empress Ballroom. They claimed it was the finest in the world in their advertising. It certainly is very large. It was, it was quite a while before any public ballrooms were built in towns and cities. The first one in London wasn't until 1919. Um, already 20 years after what's happening in Blackpool, when the Hammersmith Palais de Dance was opened. And by this time, there's um, different things happening with the dancing. At this point, the wealthier classes are beginning to dance in public venues. Again, in this changing economic climate, the many grand families could no longer afford to keep a London house that they'd have for the season and needed an alternative. Um, and also, um, there's a view that um, upper-class society was getting rather tired of their own society, meeting only the same people in the same places with the same um, catalogue of dances each time. And there was a, a new fashion for supper clubs. So much smaller venues, the kind of precursor of, of more intimate nightclubs. But for their grand entertainment, there was a new, a new series of hotels. People were travelling more widely now. And places like the Piccadilly in central London, which opened in 1908 became a very well-known destination with resident bands and a well-known programme of special events to attract dancers of all kind. By the 1920s, 1930s, we see a different kind of elite. 
people now want to be more like film actors. They want to see those images that they've seen in in Astaire and Rogers films that they associate with dancing. So the idea of the entertainment buildings, when architects were able to experiment with new style for new ballrooms, was a very similar experience to set designers for Hollywood films. They hadn't designed anything like this before and they were able to bring new European modernism and art deco to that creation. I think following on from that, um, the British experience of dancing um, is in large part down to Mecca. Mecca perpetuated the glamorous Hollywood ideal um, by, by devising a, a series of designs for their, for their ballrooms which emulated this contemporary version, which had been reinvented by Hollywood of elegance and a near-future modern, modern world. Josephine Bradley, one of the best-known proponents in the early days, says that Mecca has brought another kind of glamour, an everyday glamour. It has showed the dignity that could be in ballroom dancing to the whole country. Their first attempts, which they called Savoy Hotel Standards at Palais Prices, was things like using white tablecloths, having usherettes and page boys in smart uniforms and having new bands. So it's the, the idea of, of everything, not just the music, not just the dancing, not just the space, but the whole effect. The sheer size of the spaces, the decor, the facilities on offer, live music, the management style and attentive staff were all to work together to provide a glamorous alternative or an escape from an often drab, everyday world. There's a 1939 description of the the Locarno in Streatham, which was owned by Billy Cotton. And he says, I walked down a flight of stairs straight into the continent. This might have been Paris or Berlin, this large octagonal room, with balconies lined with a row of red electric lamps, great Chinese lanterns hanging from the arched roof, the orchestra seated before a backcloth of gold and grey. There was a continental touch about the assorted costumes too. He's perhaps swayed by a lot of anti-American feeling that was around at the time that encouraged a focus on Europe as a preferred cultural influence. But the writer's definitely unwilling to associate it with Streatham, which is a rather nondescript borough in South London, and sees it as somehow verging on the exotic. I think that the Mecca Palais were all designed to a, to a same pattern as well. And I think that that idea of a chain, which is very familiar to us all now, the kind of branding that you see, was criticised then as it is now. Another big contributor to the continuing popularity of ballroom dancing was Butlins and the Butlins holiday camps which had started out in the 1930s and used the same luxury branding favoured by Mecca, aimed at working classes who were, for the first time, having paid holidays um, and offering them not only um, outdoor activities but ballroom dancing. All the camps in general had three ballrooms and you could go to lessons all day, go dancing all night. People were happy to believe in the, in the idea of the spaces that were there, these themed 
ballrooms. And I think the buildings that made up the ballrooms were actually very simple structures. And these were just a series of decorations that were applied to the surface, but nevertheless were were believed in for that moment of fantasy. As a final question, if our listeners were magically transported back to the heyday of the ballroom with couples swirling around the floor, what could they have expected to have seen and heard? We all Today, we all dance in lots and lots of different places, very often in sports halls because they're big spaces with sprung floors. They don't have high ceilings. They don't have exotic decor. They're very utilitarian spaces. When you go to dance at somewhere like the Rivoli Ballroom, which is probably the best one in, in London, it somehow takes you back to that, to that idea of glamour, that you can be in this wonderful space, that the, there are chandeliers lighting the room, there's plush velvet on the seats, there's gold trim everywhere, there's marquetry on the doors, there's a kind of, there's a quality about the decor that somehow, I suppose it makes us all feel better. Whether that was, whether that was the same I think it probably was, it was even more so if you're an ordinary mill worker in 1920 and you go to Blackpool to the seaside and venture into the winter gardens or into the the tower ballroom to see chandeliers, lights, you know, electricity bouncing off gold leaf, real marble, must have been amazing. That was Hilary French. Her book, Ballroom, A People's History of Dancing, is out now, published by Reaction. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 